ladies and gentlemen, we will now hear the message from the Lord through our pastor, Matthew Whiteford. Amen. No pressure there. Don't get your hopes up. No. Uh, all right. How are you guys doing this week? Fine. I'm glad. I'm glad. Stay there. Nope. That's what I get for getting a boffet. Okay. Uh, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Ephesians 2. Ephesians is a really good book. I was thinking, uh, I have a, a challenge. How about we all as a church agree to try to read Ephesians, it's only six chapters, read the whole book every day until Easter. Think we can do that? I think that would, in fact, I love Ephesians so much, I'm going to start with uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. We're doing an audible, sorry, forgive me. Uh, sound and tech. Ephesians is such a good book that I just think we need to start from the beginning to really appreciate what Paul's doing. We're still preaching on Ephesians chapter 2, but we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from our God and from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. In love, he predestined us to the adoption as sons through, through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavishes upon us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his desire, according to his kind intention, which he proposed, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In him we also have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purposes, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were, first, that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, that's us, to the praise of his glory. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you and making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. 
I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under subjection, sorry, all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Here we go, chapter 2. And you were made, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love which he loved us, with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing, rich, the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Dear God, once again, we just thank you. Thank you for who you are and thank you for what you've done for us. And uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be called by your name and be part of your people and your one big family. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, it's not as obvious when you read the whole thing. It's just so powerful. But in this part, chapter two, it's almost like in the first 10 verses of chapter two, it's almost like... uh, Paul takes us on a roller coaster, you know, we're, we're starting up here, I mean, we feel great after reading chapter one, I always feel great after reading chapter one, I don't know about you, but you feel great after reading chapter one, and then all of a sudden, the first few verses of chapter two just kind of take you on a, you know, they just, they just, you just kind of go straight down on a roller coaster ride, uh, you know, uh, in the first three verses, he kind of, Paul kind of drops us into a plunge, uh, a hair-raising free fall, like on a roller coaster or an amusement park ride, and you're hoping the safety harnesses are working, you know, he's just speaking of our condition and the rest of humanity's condition. We are enslaved to our own sinful desires, Uh, We don't know what we want, we just know we want it, and we want it now, and we don't care who we have to sacrifice to get it. Uh, You know, we are enslaved by our own sinful desires, and we're also enslaved by the world. We, the way the system works, we make compromises just to survive, or God forbid, to get ahead. Uh, You know, we make compromises just because we think that's what's best in the short term. We make short-sighted decisions and let innocence suffer. 
you know, and we have these sinful desires, we have the world, and then we just have Satan, you know, trying to control us, to tempt us. And just when we really, and he, Paul just goes into that, how much these three things have a hand in just wrecking our lives and just how they just combine to make us so dead inside. And just when we feel, oh no, there's no hope, and we realize how really dead we are and how we're powerless against this, this just overwhelming obstacle in our way. In verses 4 to 6, he kind of just pulls us out of it. We see God's mercy and grace as he provides salvation for us in Jesus Christ. And 4 to 6 are kind of like the bottom, you know, they're a big moment in the roller coaster. They're like the center of the ride, you know, it's all those G-forces are crushing down on you and you're down at the bottom and you're starting to level out. And it's, it's in that place that we're pulled up from death to life uh, as we understand, as we first understand and recognize our problem, death and sin, and our own and just our own ways to try to work around death and sin and justify ourselves with rules. And then, we, and then after that, we're enabled to truly understand our redemption because it's not any of that. Uh, what saves us from our first problem is what Jesus Christ has done for us and that we are made alive in him because he did it. And finally, as we start to climb out of the center of the ride, we start going up in verses 7 through 10, you know, we talk about how in the order for the ages to come to recognize, we thank and we praise God and, you know, for his astonishing grace and that through him, by his grace, we live a life for others, just like Jesus did, just like God does. Uh, and uh, Paul actually achieves this effect in our text. You know, he just kind of, he ends it right. You know, God, God did all this. He took you from where you were down here at the bottom. He pulled you out of it and he gave you new life because he wants you to live this life for others and, uh, and uh, walk in the good works because you are the masterpiece that God, God is a master craftsman and he made you so you can live and breathe and be really alive going around and loving people just like he did when he, when he walked in the garden and just like Jesus did when Jesus walked in Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, so let's, that's kind of the bird's eye view overview. So let's try to dig in there and let's go to the first uh, three verses. Uh, we were dead in sin, uh, and we walked like it. Uh, who's ever, and sometimes we still do, even when we're Christian, who's ever found it really easy to forgive an unchristian for like something big, because the Holy Spirit laid it on your heart, or it was a witnessing opportunity, and then when your spouse, or some friend at church, or your, your, uh, someone you're discipling in Christ, or someone discipling you in Christ, just misses it a little bit, you get righteously indignant because they should know better. No one else struggles with that. That's just me. Okay, I, they, should know, they should have their act together by now. How, you know, and it's easy to forget that you know, without Christ in, enabling and operating in us, we're just as, the parts of us that aren't redeemed yet are just as dead as any other sinner or unbeliever. Uh, I remember the first time I saw a corpse. Uh, it was my uh, great-grandfather Whiteford. I was 10. And uh, I went into the funeral home and a young boy and remember looking at him and he looked so different. Uh, you know, he, he was dead. <laughs> His skin was off, looked almost like a mannequin the way they'd done him up. And to me, it's just a really vivid picture of uh, how we are on the inside before Jesus Christ breathes life into our souls and hearts, breathes, li breathes life into our inmost being. Because my great-grandfather in that casket was unable to help himself, 
And uh, that's what we are as humans. The deadness of our own sin means that we are powerless and beyond hope. And, you know, even when we're a Christian, when we sin, you know, and when a Christian sins against us, we shouldn't be so righteous and offended because they're just as powerless to sin as in themselves without the intervening Holy Spirit and grace of God. They're just as powerless against that sin as my grandfather was in the casket. And the funny thing is, uh, when a Christian brother sins against you or a Christian sister sins against you and you get frustrated with them because they should know better, it just kind of shows parts of us or parts of me aren't as redeemed and alive and not dead as I like to think they are, you know? And that's another part of our deadness and sin is we don't see our lost condition. We don't see the deadness of our own heart and minds. Uh, we don't see our lost condition. Uh, you know, and they're judging our, our Christian brother for sinning against us, counting up, was it seven times? Was it 77 times? Or do I got to forgive him 40, 490 times? Like, what exactly did Jesus mean by that? You know, and that just shows how unredeemed and dead we're thinking and living, even in our Christianness, even in our new life. Because if we were really alive in Christ, we wouldn't be keeping score like that. Uh, and it just kind of shows that when we're so hung up on our brother's or sister's sin, uh, that we don't, we're not even fearing loving and trusting God anymore, you know, and not even aware of our own sins and how great God is to have forgive them. We're not aware of our deadness because we were dead. We were only dead in sin by our very natures. And now we are, I mean, we were conceived. I mean, we were, we just inherited death. We inherited death from Adam and that death and decay affects our whole being. Uh, I mean, and by this fallen world and the sinful people in it and our own sins, uh, we, our natural man, is estranged from God. It's corrupt. Uh, it's, it's gut-level programming is hostile to God. It opposes him. And this is what Paul means when he says, we're children, to, we're, we're children of wrath. We're disobedient and evil. We are certainly not in the will anymore. We're not in the inheritance. And we're not even really contributing to the family either, so we have no reason to be mad. It's not like we're you know, faithfully serving our father and helping him take care of the sheeps that are, you know, feeding the flock that are going to feed us and that, that are our inheritance anyway. But this is what Paul means when he says, like, in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, sorry, in 1 Corinthians 2, it's just like the, uh, the gospel of Christ, natural man cannot accept it. It just seems so wrong and unfair. And again, this is just because natural man is dead. And, you know, like, the same way flying can't make sense to a fish, the gospel of life without the grace of God can't make sense to people living in a state of death. You know, indeed, it's just like all teaching and preaching is lost. Even the true gospel expertly uh, communicated is lost on anyone until he or she, until her heart is enlightened and converted and regenerated by the Holy Spirit, until the Holy Spirit calls them by the gospel so they can see and they can be made alive to see. And, you know, but it says here, you know, we walked as dead men. Our text here says today we were walking as dead men. This walking means we're like living the life. We're living a lifestyle of dead, of dead men. You know, whether it's making a lot of money or anything. Who's ever been doing something and God just kind of tells you, there's no life in this, you know, whether it's watching a football game or, you know, playing the stock market, like, hey, things went, stocks are up, or I made the right bet, you know, I sold when I should have, or I got out when I should have, I stayed in when I should have, and you feel good, and then all of a sudden it's like, there's no life in this, 
there's no life in this. Um, you know, and, uh, but that's because, and that's God's grace. The Holy Spirit in us is witnessing because when, even as Christians, when we get caught carrying out, as it says in verse three, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, you know, there's no life in that. And I think it's funny, uh, when this letter, you know, at the beginning of chapter two, Paul is talking to Gentiles, you know, and you were dead in your sins and you were, you know, uh, and you were dead in your trespasses. But by verse three, he kind of gets a little bit more inclusive. He goes from not just you Gentiles, he starts talking about we Jewish people, you know, among them, we too, you know, even us Jewish people, we are the sons of disobedience. We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of our mind. And Paul should know that better than anyone, that all people, Jews and Gentiles, uh, good church folk and the unchurched, as we would say. Now, that's the scary part. Uh, good church-going good church Bible believers and unchurched Bible believers. We are all equally condemned and hopeless. And Paul himself, that he, as, a pool, as a cruel persecutor, as Saul, you know, back when he was doing, back when he was being the good Christian of his day, uh, you know, he thought he deserved God's approval. He thought he was doing the right thing. He was extremely religious, extremely zealous, and he tried dramatically to be more deserving of the prosperity he already had than anyone else. But still, he had to prove to himself and to the world that, you know, the solution is to be like me, be the Pharisee. Uh, I always cringe when I hear a sermon like where the pastor's like, you need to get right with God, you know? Uh, sometimes that's a dangerous phrase there. Uh, organized religion, even theologically correct. I mean, Jesus never had a problem with what the Pharisees believed. The Pharisees were theologically 100% correct in everything they believed, uh, just like we are as Baptists. Jesus just had a problem with who they were as people and how they lived their lives. Uh, and that scares me because, you know, I'm theologically 100% correct too. Uh, and I don't like, and, but somehow I want to feel that that gives me a, a bonus point with God or something. Uh, and Jesus and Paul, well, Jesus first and then Paul second, make it very clear that organized religion, even good ones, uh, with their attempts to get right with God, organized religion are not the answer. And the reason for that is very simple. God wants to save people by his grace alone. Uh, you know, salvation, according to St. Paul and according to Jesus, is entirely a gift from God. We've done nothing to deserve it, okay? But because of this salvation, because of this gift of God's grace, we are alive in Christ. And that is when we get, how do we get out of this downward spiral? This is when we start coming out of it, when we start going up, is in verses four through six. We are alive in Christ because of God's grace. Uh, the condition of mankind, well, it's hopeless, but for God. But because God has boldly and powerfully acted, because God has spoken his word, sent his word of Jesus Christ into existence, our condition is not, doesn't have to be the hopelessness that it, that it is. God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save us, his lost and dead creatures. And, God's, and it was own God's desire for us to be alive, healthy, and dare I say, happy, well, let's say loving, and loving. 
God's desire for us to be loving and alive is what moved him to rescue us from this lost and condemned condition. Uh, God did not give us this life because we had earned it or because we were worthy or because there was anything valuable in us worth redeeming. Okay, no, we were a hopeless case. There, there, we were not a salvage project, you know. We could just get this quarterback's, you know, technique right, his throwing motion right. We could, he's a reclamation project. We were not a reclamation project. There was nothing worth proclaiming. Uh, it's simply because, why he did it because of who he is, not because of who we are. Uh, he did it because he loved us and he cared about us. That simple. He's just a really, really good dad. And so, like the good dad he is, uh, he came to rescue, he sent his son to rescue us. Uh, he sent his son into the world to suffer and die this, in the sinner's place. And while we were yet sinners, while we were lost, while we were dead and condemned, he sent us to do this. And because of that, we received the abundant grace through Christ and in him alone. We are alive in Christ. This is the solution to the fallenness and brokenness of the world. This is the solution to ourselves. It's, we're sinners. Sinners are dead and sinners must die. I mean, sinners are spiritually dead and they pay the penalty and they die later too. Uh, sinners are going to die, whether sinners that don't know Jesus or sinners that God has made new life. But the sinner part of us has to die. You know, maybe some die in the second death, and some of us are going to die here on earth because it is, we are crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live, it is Christ who lives in us. I think it, people think that Christ comes to bring us from death to life. We forget, well, there's still that death part. Even in the natural world, there's still that death part to teach us that we die daily, every day, so that Christ lives in us. That is with what, what the new life is. The sinner in us cannot continue existing. But we who were dead and who must die have been raised to new life in him. We who were slave to sin, slaves to sin have been set free from sin, from the world, from the devil, and just our own sinful mindset. And he says now because of that, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's a whole sermon in and of itself. But what that does mean is that we are ruling and reigning with Christ now and in eternity. Uh, that rule does not mean the health and wealth prosperity or the right to run the earth as a temporal government like some people want it to be, but it does mean that we get to rule and reign through Christ in his service and self-sacrifice to loving others. Because now we are servants of the one who has given us new life and set us free. And when you're free, when you're really free in Christ, when a Roman soldier conscripts you to carry your pack one mile and can temporarily enslave you to carry his armor one mile, when you're really free in Christ, you're happy to do it two miles. The, the subjugation aspect, the enslavement aspect of it doesn't bother you because you're free in Christ. You're no longer a slave. You do it by your own free will. And not just one mile, two. Okay? When your boss asks you to stay late, you do it of your own free will because you're a slave to Christ and alive in Christ, and it's no longer slavery anymore. Now, and this is verse 5. Uh, this is the center of it all. This is the, the rock bottom of our little roller coaster. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he loved us and he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Even our conversion, our being made alive, is another miracle of God's grace. 
Uh, and that is a beautiful thing because the part of us that is made alive actually rebels against the part of us that's dead. Uh, we still struggle with sin, yes, but now we're grieved about it. We don't treat our spouse the way we would like because we actually would like to treat our spouse better now. Uh, sometimes there's a nagging doubt when we're judging our brother that deep down we should be judging ourselves. Uh, and that's a beautiful thing because when he did this, he made a change in us. We are no longer aliens that don't have a right to live in the country, but we are God's beloved children called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Uh, and we are no longer just sinners to God anymore, but we are seen in the light of what Christ has done for us. We are forgiven and brought back by the word of the gospel. And that word does not come back fruitless, all right? Sometimes I talk to people who are, who are believers and they're really grieved over a sin they just did, like, how could I act that way after 35 years of being a Christian, you know? And sometimes people want to doubt their salvation after they sin really badly. Uh, that part's never made sense to me. But uh, the good news is uh, your opinion of yourself and your sin doesn't really matter as much as Jesus Christ's opinion of you and your sin. And he has forgiven you and declared you righteous. Uh, and when he says you are a new creation, when he says you are alive, when he says you are righteous, that actually changes something. He's not just putting a rubber stamp of clean on, on like spoiled milk, okay? <laughs> no, like when Jesus puts that stamp clean, well, that milk may not look clean right now, but the cleaning process has started. It's becoming clean, and it's, gonna, it's, it's more clean than you ever realize, and it's going to be clean forever. And that is the beauty of the interchange that Christ works with us. It's just that change often works from the inside out. So your external behavior and your external rough edges are probably the last thing that Christ, if they're really done by Christ and not just you trying to clean the outside of the cup and dish, if it's really done by Christ, it's probably going to be one of the last things that happens before your death, if it happens on this earth. Uh, and that encourages me, because Christ changes us from the inside out, which means we can't judge our brothers for the sins they do on the outside, because we don't know what's on the inside. But because we're now justified by God's grace, thank God we do, it's not just all this rough edges on, and sin on the outside. We do have a new will and new thoughts and new desires on the inside. We at least want to be centered in the gospel. We at least want to tr take care of our kids or treat people right. Uh, part of us doesn't desire to sin anymore. Part of us realizes there's no life in here and that all that fun is just bubblegum and not the nourishing, sincere milk of the word. Uh, all of a sudden, we're starting to over, be overcome with desires to repent, thinking repentance might even be a good idea, maybe realizing it's not as, sin's not as fun as we thought it was and that it really is a bondage to slavery. And one of the most telltale beautiful things is that we now begin to recognize our God as the loving Father of all mercy that he is. We start to see Jesus as our Savior and Redeemer and even our Lord. And we start to feel like we belong to a new family, that we belong to a new nation. We recognize that God is the father of our little feudal kingdom of God and that God in heaven and this new family is open to us. And Paul makes it very clear towards the end that it is God who does all this. Conversion, you're, the, the changes in you, that, who wants to see more changes in their, in their heart? Just ask. 
Don't try, just ask. Obedience is a gift from God. That change is a gift from God. Uh, you know, if you can't stop cussing when the bears, uh, uh, you know, make a bad play, or you can't stop embezzling funds from work, trying harder is not going to cut it. You know, you're going to ask, beg and ask God for the gift of obedience the way you beg and ask God to get you out of trouble when you get caught. Has anyone ever tried that? It's amazing. It really is amazing. That change is solely God's work. Okay. And what's beautiful is God is removing our, when we pray like that, it's amazing because it shows us what God has done. God has literally removed our spiritual inability to trust him and given us a new spiritual understanding, a new heart and a new vision that makes us realize we can trust him. We should trust, trust him. We see now that he is our only shot. Jesus Christ coming back to save this broken and fallen world is the only thing that matters to us. And that's a beautiful thing because we are brought forth in this time. This is a pivotal time on earth. I believe this is a special time on earth. I don't know about you. Things are happening so fast and so crazily that if we're alive by his grace, it's to walk after him. Just even as just a testimony to the world to see what true believers who love God and are so worshipful of him and so in love with him that it just changes everything about them. And the earth needs this witness because, you know, God said in the last, well, Jesus, well, Jesus is God. So God did say, when Jesus spoke, God did say, it's in red. Jesus did say that wickedness would increase in the last days and nation would rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom and wickedness would increase, and the love of most would grow cold, and that if it were possible, even the elect could be deceived. I don't want our, I don't want our love to grow cold into response to the hurt and abuse and wickedness in this world. I want our love to grow. I want the life inside us to be overflowing instead of just keeping us on spiritual ICU. I want, my prayer is that for me and for you, and it's so easy to weary and get weary and well-doing or wrongdoing, for that matter. There's no rest for the wicked. But I, I say all this to say God's purpose to save us is not just temporal, it's eternal. To those who overcome, he will give the crown of life. And when that happens, the grace of God, as he talks about in verses 7 through 10, the grace of God will be on display for all eternity. You know, and that will bring him glory. The glory of showing the human beings he saved and redeemed from themselves. Uh, many, per many people can say verses 8 and 9 by heart. Who can say Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 by heart? Anyone? Oh, I got one, two. Yes, I'm just going to read them for those of you that, haven't that weren't forced to memorize this in Awana. Ephesians 2, chapter, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as, a, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. You know, how, this is the beauty of it. You know, how rich God's grace towards us is. You know, we're saved by grace and not by work. No one can boast about what we've done. Why? Because God is going to boast about us in heaven for eternity. And arrogance and boasting is like a really flashy leather jacket that only like, Ronaldo or God can get away wearing anyone or maybe Kanye West anybody else that would just look tacky on you know but that's just that glory of God is so amazing that he's allowed to gloat in heaven 
at all the people he saved that he brought from death to life. And it's okay when he does it because his heart won't be corrupted by it. And there's encouragement in that. And in verse 10, to close, in verse 10, Paul speaks of the effect on the gospel's in a believer's real life. You know, we're not just hating ourselves, trusting Jesus and trying harder. No, we are happy. It is a privilege to serve. It is a privilege to forgive each other. It is a privilege to forgive our spouses and our annoying pastors who preach too long. It is an honor and a privilege because the Holy Spirit and the gospel are inside us. And the good deeds we work are done because Jesus Christ has already prepared them for you. He knew the pastor was going to preach too long today, and so he readied your heart to forgive him for that. He knew your husband was going to change lanes without using the turn signal on the way to the restaurant today, and he's already prepared your heart to forgive them for that. Amen. (laughs) In conclusion, I can happily and confidently tell you that as a believer in the cross of Jesus Christ, you are saved by grace. You are saved by grace, which comes from God by faith alone in Jesus Christ. That is the center of the roller coaster. It's the center of the New Testament, and I hope it's the center of your relationship with our Lord and Savior. And I hope you have a relationship with our Lord and Savior, so that this means anything to you. Uh, you're, if you don't, you're welcome to come down, and we will uh, get that started right now. But buckle up, it is a roller coaster, and I hope you taste this new life that we seem to speak of. But otherwise, uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Go and serve the Lord. Amen.